0: Zephaniah, chapter 3, verses 14 through 20. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival, so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At that time, when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth, when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: So last week, my wife got a text from one of our friends and the text said, hey, I want you to see the notes that my son took during Doug's last sermon. Now, he's probably, I'm guessing, oh, I'm not sure, eight, something like that. So I'm thinking, oh, this is, this is great. I love the idea that if you, if you speak God's word clearly enough, an eight-year-old can follow right along. So let me see his notes. And so this, were, this was the notes of my friend's son. <laughs> I am awesome. (laughs) I'm assuming he means in Christ, right? Like we're amazing grace, right? I was a wretch, but no longer. Now I'm awesome. Um, There is a place to write sermon notes in your bulletin. When we get to the main point, I'm going to highlight it especially well this week so that it's caught a little bit better. But we are of great value, so it's great. It's great. We're going to be looking at Zephaniah. And as we uh, look at Zephaniah, we're going to be doing it in a format similar to what we've been doing all summer, as far as looking behind the text, what is the history behind Zephaniah, and then looking at the text, what did Zephaniah say and then we're going to say, we're going to look at in front of the text. How does it apply to me? How does it impact me in this world, in this context? So when we look behind the text to see what is going on in Zephaniah's world when he writes, when we do that, I, I want to put up a map so that you can get an idea of what's going on in Israel at this time. Because before somebody showed me this, I forget the first time I saw it. But before it was showed to me, it was like, oh, wow, that's not how I pictured Israel. Israel is obviously an important nation, right? And at this time, so I think Israel is key. Everybody knows about Israel. But during the time that Zephaniah writes, Israel is mostly like a racetrack. There's these three monster nations, This is a picture of the Babylonian Empire a little bit. It's kind of how they completed their empire shortly after Zephaniah wrote. So this is about 600 BC. At this point, Babylonia, the Babylonian Empire has won. But there were three giant nations. There was the one where Babylon was the capital. They went out. But there was also Nineveh. This is the Assyrian Empire. Assyria is the one that rolled down in 722 BC and conquered the northern kingdom, Israel, right? When Hezekiah had that miracle deliverance that some of you might know about, that was around 701 BC. That's from the Assyrians. By the time Zephaniah's writing, the Babylonians are already looking to conquer the Assyrians. And here's the third big dog. It's Egypt. So there's Babylon the Assyrians, in Egypt. And then there's the Mediterranean Sea and the Arabian Desert. And you're not bringing your army through here. That's called a navy. And you're not going through the desert. So you come right down in here. If Egypt wants to get up to Assyria or fight with Babylon, they're going to go trampling right through Israel. And if either Assyria or Babylon ever wanted to go down here to deal with Egypt... They're going right through Judah. Judah, Israel, Jerusalem. They're like this narrow passageway that all the big dogs want to just trample over. Israel, at least on their own, when they look at their army they have no chance to deal with Egypt, Assyria, or Babylon. They are not some great conquering nation when zephaniah writes in fact when zephaniah writes there's this transition going on there's this struggle and maybe it will be helpful to put up a timeline the assyrians conquer israel in the northern kingdom around 722 bc josiah who is the last great king of judah israel's gone at this point right the northern kingdom's gone southern kingdom, Judah. The king is Josiah. This is when Zephaniah is prophesying. Josiah is there. He's hanging out in Jerusalem. And during his reign, Babylon throws off Assyrian rule. It's right around 625 BC. Then they decide, oh, we don't just want to be independent. We're going to take you over. So by 612 BC, they've conquered Assyria. So now they're running back. Egypt is coming out. To help out Assyria. Because Egypt now is saying. We don't like Babylon being that dominant. Then we'll have the same problem we had with Assyria. So Egypt's saying. Okay I'm going to team up. With Assyria to hold off the Babylonians. By 605 it's all over. Babylon's wiped out the Assyrian army. And the Egyptian army. But during, during Josiah's reign there's actually some confusion on who's going to come out on top and who should we align ourselves with. Because if we align ourselves with the wrong one out of these big three, we're in trouble. In fact, the way that Josiah dies is he knows that the Pharaoh, the Egyptian army, is coming up right through Israel. And they say, hey, King Josiah, we don't want any problem with you. But we want to go right through your country because we want to fight the Babylonians. We're going to team up with the Assyrians and fight the Babylonians. And Josiah, who's been reigning for 31 years, he's this great king. He's this last hope for Judah. He's been reigning 31 years, but he's only 39. He became king when he was eight. He decides, Egypt, you're not coming through here. And he goes out to meet him at this battle at Megiddo. When he goes out there, the pharaoh says, don't do this. I don't have a problem with you. Just get out of my way. I'm coming through. King Josiah says no, decides to fight him. It appears to be ill-advised. Josiah is killed. This is one of the saddest days in the history of ancient Judah. This was their last hope. They know there's monsters all around them and they were counting on this godly king and now he's gone. And it actually does spiral quickly from there. By 605... Babylon's taken over, and they're actually pulling some of the uh, inhabitants of Jerusalem and Judah out of their country. That's how Daniel, you know, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and that great book of Daniel, they're all in Babylon. That happens in 605, most people think. A little bit later, Ezekiel and more leaders are taken out of there. And by 586, it's over. That Jerusalem has rebelled against Babylon for the last time. And Babylon comes in and crushes them. There will never, up until this time still, never be a son of David on the throne in Jerusalem. And the temple is leveled. This is how the Israelites, this is how the people in Jerusalem and Judah interacted with God. This was their relationship with him, their temple. This is where he dwelled. And it's gone. 586. It would be hard to imagine a more devastating day for any people. Hopeless. Zephaniah is writing during the reign of Josiah. He predicts the fall of Assyria. So I'm trusting that if he's prophesying the fall of Assyria, he does that in chapter 2, right around verse 13, something in there. That I'm trusting, well, he then wrote before Assyria fell. So he's probably writing, let's just say 630 BC. He knows judgment's coming for Jerusalem. It's coming for Assyria, it's coming for Egypt, and it's coming for Jerusalem. So which day... Might you think that Zephaniah would be talking about the most in his three-chapter book? Which day? He's living right there. Don't you think he talked mostly about that day coming in 586? 586 BC, this is a bad day. This is probably the day that Zephaniah is going to talk about, right? And he does talk about that day. In chapter 1, verse 4, he says God is going to stretch out his arm against Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So he talks about that day in 586. But it's secondary. It's like a shadow of a coming day. The day of the Lord, Zephaniah calls it. And on this day, we hear right in the very first verses, chapter 1, verse 2, there's going to be a lot more judgment going down than just on Jerusalem. He says, the Lord is going to utterly sweep away all mankind, all man, all beasts, all the birds in heaven, and all the fish in the sea it's like a reversal of creation right that I am going to wipe it all out 586 when Jerusalem's wiped out when the siege is completed that's a big day but it's a shadow of the one to come the day of the Lord So, where does Zephaniah land his message? The message about the day of the Lord. We read it, right? Zephaniah 3, verses 14 through 20. We read. But it wasn't bad news, right? He's talking about the day of the Lord and it's this good news. It's a day of hope. Maybe as much as any minor prophet, he presents this clear, unmatched picture of hope. How can he do that? How can he talk about the day of the Lord as this day of overwhelming judgment and overwhelming hope? At the same time, for me, it's most helpful when I'm thinking about that day to remember what Jesus said about that day in John chapter 5, verses 28 to 29. Jesus said, A day is coming, the same day that Zephaniah is talking about. A day is coming. When all who are in their graves will hear my voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to eternal life. And those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. That those who have done good will rise to experience the greatest hope of any day ever. And those who are rising to be condemned will experience the greatest day of judgment ever. So that when Zephaniah is writing about the day of the Lord, he can land on one or the other. But he lands on a message of hope. And if you're taking notes, <laughs> this is the line to write, to take out of Zephaniah. That on that day the king will dwell in our midst at this day of the lord that zephaniah is gonna hammer for the whole three chapters he starts with it he ends with it and he talks about it the whole way in between he lands on on that day the king will dwell in our midst this must have been a mind blowing statement for any of those who had lived in Israel or Judah and had understood the promises made to David after 586. To read Zephaniah and hear, there's a day coming on that day, the king will dwell in our midst. What on earth can that possibly look like when in 586? The son of David, a son of David is removed from the throne and he hasn't been there since. And the temple is leveled. Our understanding of the king dwelling in our midst is to have a son of David on the throne and that's not there. And our understanding of having the Lord in our midst is in the temple and the temple's not there. What could this day possibly look like? For Zephaniah to say this statement that on that day the king will dwell in our midst knowing that 586 in total destruction is coming is puzzling. But I think we get a really good picture of what that day might look like. Some insight into what that day will look like when the king dwells in our midst if we look back at the gospel of John just for a little bit I have some verses that I want to compare up there but don't put any of them up yet (laughs) John chapter 12 verse 15 we're right smack in the middle of the story of Palm Sunday Palm Sunday right Jesus is moving into Jerusalem a week later He's going to be put to death. But as he moves into Jerusalem. In John chapter 12. All the people are shouting and singing. And as he moves in. John writes in chapter 12 verse 15. He says this fulfills the scripture. And then he quotes scripture. And the scripture goes something like this. Fear not. That's like one part of it. Fear not daughter of Zion your king is coming on a donkey really four pieces fear not daughter of Zion your king is coming on a donkey here's the puzzling part those four phrases are not put together anywhere in scripture so what's John doing? what's he quoting? is he just misquoting scripture? That doesn't seem likely. Is he adding words randomly? That doesn't seem likely either. Most people know he's referencing Zechariah 9.9 at least. Because Zechariah 9.9, which we're going to get to in August, references three of these things. It doesn't say anything about fear not. But it does say, daughter of Zion, your king is coming to you on a donkey. So it gets the last three. That's pretty close, right? Three out of four. So when he references scripture he's got Zechariah 9:9. I'm convinced. He also has Zephaniah chapter 3 verses 14 and 15 in mind. Because Zephaniah chapter 3 verses 14 and 15 also nails three of those phrases. It does say don't be afraid. It does say daughter of Zion and it does make reference to her king. It just doesn't say anything about the donkey. Do you remember up here when Carol was saying, hey, I'm going through the minor prophets and there's certain words I'm looking for and I'm connecting them. She's saying, you know, I'm looking for day of the Lord and where that comes up and I make a spreadsheet and a remnant and Claude said, hey, that's like seminary work. (laughs) It's also like Old Testament exegesis or what the guys were doing, they were writing the New Testament. John saw these two common phrases, daughter of Zion and your king. And he said, wow, Zephaniah 3, 14 and 15 and Zechariah 9:9 are very similar. Let's put them together. And so he puts these two verses together and he comes up with what he wrote. in John chapter 12, verse 15. So why tell you all that? Because I want us to see what John saw and was amazed. That Jesus is giving us a picture of what it's going to look like on that day when the King dwells in our midst. That Jesus Christ is the King. And he is the Lord. And we're going to see him face to face. On that day, Palm Sunday, that wasn't the day. It's like John gave us a snapshot of what it will be like. But on that day, as you heard Claude reference, when he was talking about Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 9, it's going to be for all the nations that all the nations will gather around Jesus the King and we will all sing and shout and we will see him face to face. On that day, the King will dwell in our midst. It's a good day to think about for all who are looking to see Jesus Christ face to face. There is something that the king has to do first before that can happen, though. That what we read in verse 15, right, chapter 3, verse 15, is that, yeah, he's going to dwell in our midst. But what we read before that is that he has to do something first. That first, before the king can dwell in our midst, the king removes our judgment and our enemies. Our judgment and our enemies. What it says is, the king removes the judgments against us. Isaiah prophesied this too. That he said in chapter 53 of his book, verse 5, it reads like this. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. That when Jesus goes to that cross, there's a transaction going on. It's more than just a transaction. Because we're in relationship with him. But he takes on the judgments against us. He pays for it. He removes them. Just recently, I met a woman in the grocery store. And I was talking to her for about, oh, three seconds, five seconds, when she mentioned to me that she was a widow. And I thought, wow, that's fast to share with a stranger that you're a widow. So I thought, okay, Lord, what are you doing here? And as she talked a little bit longer, she went on to say, not only am I a widow, and my husband died a few years ago, but since that time I became friends with someone else who was a widower. But He just recently passed, too. And I thought, that sounds lonely. And I know what it is to be lonely, although maybe I can't experience the extreme loneliness you're feeling right now. But I thought, maybe you'd be less lonely here. So I said, why don't you come to church? if you come to church we actually have other people there a fair amount of people who are going through that same pain we have widows and widowers in our congregation come to church as soon as I said that her posture changed the conversation changed she immediately began to tell me in defensive mode that her heart was good, I never said it was bad. (laughs) She began to tell me that her heart was good, and then she began to kind of lay out all this stuff that she'd been doing as evidence that her heart was good. And so as she's saying this now, I'm thinking, oh, I know that feeling. (laughs) She's lonely. She's likely guilty, too. She's feeling guilt. I doubt she's lived this long without making some glaring, painful, destructive mistakes. And I'm just thinking, the message of Zephaniah, that the king removes the judgments against you, that you can come, come to church come meet this man who removes our guilt and experience the singing that occurs after that guilt is removed. She wanted no part of it. The conversation ended, but I just told her it was nice talking to you and I hope I see you in the grocery store again. (laughs) And I headed out. But I tell you, I was really concerned for her. Because it appeared to me that in her defense of Jesus, I don't need you, that she had set herself up as against Jesus, opposed to him, delivering an entirely different message than what Zephaniah delivers and Jesus delivers. That he did not come to die for nothing. That his death and resurrection provided the way to have our guilt removed, to have the judgments against us removed. And that when we push him away we actually set ourselves up to be his enemy. And what he also promises is that that day isn't just a day of joy But there are consequences to those who make him their enemies. It doesn't mean we wish any ill will on anyone who currently hates Jesus. Or pushes him away. In fact, the opposite. We pray for them. When you hear that message... That Carol shared about those Christians who were beheaded by those men. Do you know what our Christian response to those men who did the beheading is? Oh, pray for them. Lord, open their eyes that they can see their evil and turn to you and repent and be saved. That's not my rule. (laughs) There's no other healthy response. Jesus says, pray for them. I don't have to worry that there's going to be some great injustice because if they don't turn and recognize their sin and you know what that feels like, right? You see yourself and you're crushed by what you've done. You're broken and contrite. We're not wishing ill on our enemies. We're praying that they'll repent. And if they don't, the promise is that they will be gathered and judged. There's two gatherings going on. We read in verses 18 through 20 of Zephaniah 3. That Jesus gathers the outcasts. He gathers his. And if you follow after Jesus. You will feel like an outcast. The world will stand against you. And tell you that nobody needs Jesus. He'll gather you in. And the other gathering is a gathering of nations. In Zephaniah 3.8 he says this. Therefore wait for me declares the Lord for the day when I rise up to seize the prey for my decision is to gather nations to assemble kingdoms to pour out upon them my indignation all my burning anger for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. I don't have to worry if my enemies are going to be judged. I'm just praying for everybody who's positioned themselves as opposed to him. And how are we to respond? Those of us who are recognized that we are no longer enemies of Jesus Christ, we no longer stand against our Creator, but that we've submitted, we've accepted this rescue, and He's removed from us the judgments against us. How are we to respond? Oh, we're told in Zephaniah to sing, shout, rejoice, and exalt. In verse 13 it says, rejoice and exalt with all our hearts that nothing will rob us of this joy, that nothing will stand between us and our Creator, that no matter what the circumstances around us, we can still find hope and joy even as we move through heartbreaking situations. That we can still know that the King has removed the judgments against us and one day he will remove all of his enemies even Satan himself. And on that day there's no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Hmm. I have a question for you. Why is it that even though we as believers, we know this, why is it so difficult to keep that song in our hearts? Why is it sometimes so easy to be Dissatisfied with life or dissatisfied with who we are? Why is it so easy to be angry or anxious or frustrated or fatigued? Why is it that we can find ourselves so desperately needing to control someone or a situation, thinking once we get this done, then I'll know I'm okay? Then I'll have a song in my heart. I want to say it's because we have forgotten the message of Zephaniah 3.17. That yes, we read in 3.15 that the king will remove the judgments against us and one day he will remove all of his enemies. But in verse 17, we read the motive for this movement, for this action that the king is doing. The king loves us and rejoices over us. In fact, what it says is the king quiets us with his love. I love how Carol described that. Right? She brought it up in her verse that stood out to her, Zephaniah 3.17, that the love of God, it's like a blanket that goes over her and brings her comfort. It calms her. It quiets her. When I think of that image of God's love quieting me, I think of my mother. There's a scene in my head. I remember I was very little. I'm going to say like five or six young enough so that my mom was still fighting my battles and I remember there was a bigger boy and he hit me and I remember being really surprised one that he hit me I didn't see it coming and two that like it floored me like what on earth just happened I don't recall ever being hit like that but as I was going to get back up my mother came rushing in and as she comes in I mean, I begin with this, what do I do? I want to fight back. I have no ability to fight back. How do I fight back this big kid? But my mother comes in in her love and puts her arm around me and puts that boy in his place. He was still young enough, I guess, where he was scared of my mom. (laughs) And she quiets me with her love. Do you picture Jesus loving you like that? And why is that sometimes so hard to picture? As if Jesus can't love us like a mom loves us or like somebody else who loved us. So he's not that intimate. Any, any love that I've experienced from my mother or my father or a friend or anybody else, he's the source of it. 1 John 4 8 says, God is love. He loves us like that. You know that passage, it's actually ambiguous in the Hebrew exactly what's being said. Hebrew is like English. Sometimes when you read it, you can't quite tell what's being said. It can be ambiguous until you see more context around it. That's why NAS, which is another wonderful version, we're reading the ESV that says, the king quiets us with his love. The Lord quiets us. NAS says, The king in quiet loves us. That loves over us in quiet. It's a little different, right? It's this idea of possibly what's meant to be said is not just that he quiets us, but that Jesus loves us so much that he can just focus on us in quiet. That he loves us I picture those moments where as a dad I walked in to the bedroom where one of my kids was sleeping and there's just this quiet love. Almost can't believe that you can love like that. That Jesus loves us in quiet. It also reminds me of another verse from Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 7 says this, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, quiet, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John seem to be making direct references to this verse or at least pointing out that look this is how jesus died that as he was moving towards the cross and being accused falsely accused he was quiet that he knew that love required this that he was going to lay down his life and nothing he said could prevent it this is where the father was leading him and so in quiet he loved that before his accusers those three references all reference Jesus silence before his accusers whether it's before the chief priests and the elders or before pilate or before herod but it's in this silence he quietly lovingly moves towards the cross to rescue us think of the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go find the one lost one. Just moving out into the mountains, down the narrow path, looking for this lost sheep. Quietly, seeking, looking to find us. I think the reason we can still all experience frustration and fatigue and anxiety and anger and feel no joy at all, is because we forget. We just forget that the King loves us, and He rejoices over us. And that if we'll remember that even in the worst of situations, even if the Babylonians are coming, we still are not without hope And we still share in the joy of Christ. Even as we move through difficult and somber situations. If we look at the text and write something in sermon notes on what I hope we remember. It's that on that day the king will dwell with us. But if there's an action for us to take. Something in front of the text that as we leave here I hope we continue to do today and moving forward. It's to remember Remember that the King loves you and rejoices over you. How has he reminded you of that in the past? Is it listening to worship songs? Is it reading scripture? Is it serving in some area? What is it? Do it. Look around you and give thanks for all that you see that you're thankful for. But as you give thanks, know that the reason it's there is he loves you. I went to Claude this week. It's nice to have him in the office right next to me. And I said, how does God remind you that he loves you? How are you reminded that the king loves you? And he said, even just this week, I was out on the patio and I was reading Isaiah. And as I'm reading Isaiah this doe and her two fawns comes walking right up to the patio, got within about 10 feet of them. And he said, as I saw them, I thought of another passage in Isaiah. Isaiah 40, verse 11 reads like this. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. What a kind thing for Jesus to do for Claude. To just bring him this reminder that I'm leading you. I've got you. I love you. Last week I got a text from my daughter. It said, there's this great song. You've got to listen to it. I love it. And he's so good, she said. And so I listened to it. And as I listen to it, it's this song about God's great love. But it starts with this line about how he rejoices over us. It sounds to me exactly like Zephaniah chapter 3. I can tell you that was the first week in my entire life that I was ever preparing a sermon or a talk on Zephaniah chapter 3. So here's this song that starts with this reference and I had another friend send me another Zephaniah 3 one but my daughter didn't know I was looking at Zephaniah 3 and so I got it and it made me cry as I'm reminded he really does love me he really is kind it's unbelievable and I call back my daughter and say look this is what this did for me and she's like oh yeah they were talking about Zephaniah 3 there <laughs> he's just good Tommy and Lynette are going to come forward now and and lead us in a song of reflection. And it is this song that my daughter actually shared with me. and, And I hope as you hear it, that it reminds you that the King loves you and He rejoices over you. And then as you leave today, you'll think of ways, put yourself in places to remember that He loves you. And do this too. Because he calls us to do it. Look around you and remind those around you that he loves them too. Amen.